You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 42. Remain standing if you're able. If you need to sit, that's more than okay. We're going to read the whole of Genesis 42. And may God's people feast on God's word this morning. Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I I heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Joseph did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm would happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him and their faces, with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest Men, your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies, By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. 
And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know, verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, Joseph, or yeah, Joseph turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then verse 26, then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. But here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another. What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, son of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is God's holy word this morning. Thanks. You be seated. Steve, if I can come up just a little bit, I can feel my voice starting to go out. Well, as we have read, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to chapter 42 in this great history of salvation. Last week we learned, didn't we? We learned of God's gracious warning through the dreams of Pharaoh that a global famine was to hit the land in seven years' time. Unable to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, the chief cupbearer, reminded of his own situation when he was in prison, recommends Joseph, the Hebrew, to help bring meaning to these bizarre dreams that the Pharaoh had. Joseph was then led out of the pit. He interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. And not only did he interpret the dreams, but he also provided a business plan for the Pharaoh. And he earned the trust and the respect of the king of Egypt. 
Pharaoh rose, or rather Joseph rose in power and authority in Egypt with remarkable speed. He quickly became the vizier of Egypt. That is the governor, the ruler, second in command only to the Pharaoh himself. And of course, we learn the dreams came to pass. Seven years of abundance were followed by seven years of famine. And because of God's granted wisdom that he gave Joseph, Egypt was prepared. Their storehouses were full. While the rest of the world languished in hunger and desperation, because of God's wisdom given to Joseph, Egypt was prepared. Well, the famine was severe in the land and hunger swept through all the world, including Canaan. And so chapter 42, as we have read, opens with a frustrated and fearful Jacob. He's frustrated at the indecision of his sons. And he's fearful, of course, of the hunger that is hitting his own family Jacob, being the father and the patriarch, takes responsibility and he's fearful. And so he, as a leader, makes the call himself. And he says to his ten sons, go down to Egypt. I hear there is multitudinous resource there in Egypt. There is grain for us to buy. Go down to Egypt, buy grain so that we may live and not die. And then we learn that he holds back Benjamin the youngest, the baby of the 12, the second born of Rachel, his beloved wife. He holds back Benjamin. And it's clear by now that Benjamin had taken the place of Joseph as the apple of Jacob's eye. Of course, again, he is the baby of the family and he is the only other son of Rachel, Jacob's cherished and beloved wife. Jacob had already lost Joseph, so he thought, and he was not about to take the chance to lose Benjamin also. And so following their arrival in Egypt begins our first of three movements in the story. The first movement I've entitled Interrogation and Testing. Interrogation and Testing. Look at verse 5 and following. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor, shalit in Hebrew, meaning he was the ruler. He was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph, verse 7, saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly or harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. Second time Moses tells us this. And Joseph recognized his brothers but they did not recognize him. This is an incredible moment in the story. Joseph was only 17 years old 
when his brothers sold him into slavery. He's now at least 37. 20 years have gone by. Joseph now is also clean shaven. He's been Egyptianized, cultured. He looks like an Egyptian, doesn't look like a Hebrew. He's clean shaven. He's wearing the garbs of the vizier. Looks like a ruler. His brothers don't recognize him. So much time has gone by. Their consciences had been sealed over and over and over by other activities in life, other passing pleasures. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And how could he not? Ten Semites from Canaan. I recognize those laughs. I recognize those mannerisms. He recognized them, but he treated them as strangers, the text says. I say, try to put myself in Joseph's shoes. It's not hard to imagine the flood of emotions that came to Joseph when he recognized who was coming in the bread line. Even if Joseph had imagined this moment as you would think he would, the famine was severe in all the land. I wonder when I'm going to see my family. Even if he had imagined this moment and how he would react and what he would say, how do you prepare to meet the people who severely victimized you? What do you do when you hear the voices or see them behaving as nothing has happened? How do you prepare yourself for the confluence of emotions, fear and anger and wrath? All understandable emotions. Twenty years have gone by, but the wounds are still fresh. Time does not heal all wounds. Joseph is now the vizier in Egypt. He's the governor, but he's still that 17-year-old boy who was thrown into the pit. And so what does he do? He takes a deep breath, I imagine, and he puts on his governor hat. He acts in official capacity. Look at verse 9 and following, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Remember this? He remembered the dreams that he had of his brothers, his family, bowing down before him. And here they all are, minus one, bowing down before him. And he says to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And so the interrogation begins. A classic interrogation move. No questions, only accusation. You've done this. Haven't you? Fess up. You haven't come here for food. You've come to spy out the land. 
Look at verse 10. They answer their brother, who they don't know is their brother. No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Irony of ironies, they do not know how true that is. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. We are honest men. What a dagger to the heart of Joseph. Honest men. Honest. Audacious but not honest. Outletting his anger, he doubles down on the accusation. He says to them in verse 12, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. Again, you can just hear behind these accusations, anger and fear and hurt and grief. All understandable emotions, again, for what Joseph has gone through and is currently going through as he sees his brothers again. But it's what they say next that must have sent a dagger plunging to the bottom of Joseph's heart. When they say in verse 13, we are, we, your servants, are 12 brothers the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. They had no idea the 12th brother was standing right in front of them. And despite the deep sorrow that Joseph was feeling, somehow he keeps his head about him. He keeps his official governor hat on and the interrogation then moves to testing. You can imagine at this point what Joseph is thinking. Is Benjamin really with his father? Or has Benjamin become like me? cast out, perhaps murdered, because he's the second youngest. He's the only other son of Rachel. Surely their jealousy was not burnt off when they sent me into slavery. Maybe Benjamin is not even alive. And so Joseph tests them. At first the orders, at first he orders that one brother go and fetch Benjamin while the others stay in captivity. But after sleeping on it for three days, for some reason, Joseph decides rather to keep one brother, Simeon, and send the rest home to fetch Benjamin. It leaves us, the interpreter, wondering why he did that. At first it was, everybody's in captivity, one go get Benjamin, sleeps on it for three days, and says, no, 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 one stay in captivity, the rest go back to fetch Benjamin. We don't know exactly what 
he had in mind, but knowing the integrity of Joseph, one reason, one possible reason why he would send all of them is so that there would be more hands to carry food back to his family. He still is concerned for his family. And the text says in verse 18 that he fears God. Look at verse 18. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live. He tips his hand just a little bit. For I fear Elohim. He doesn't say, I fear Pharaoh. He doesn't say, I fear any other deity, Ra, the sun god. No, no, no. I fear the God of all creation. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Interrogation and testing is then followed by our second scene, which is signs of godly sorrow among the brothers. A surprising twist in the story. Following the interrogation and now this test to bring Benjamin back to Egypt, there are signs of godly sorrow among the brothers. This is scene two. Look at verse 21 and following. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. There were actually two famines in the world at this time. And God is addressing both. The first famine, of course, is the global shortage of food. And God is addressing that famine by the abundance he's provided in Egypt. But there is a second famine, a famine more severe than a food famine. More severe than the first. God is now going to deal with the moral famine that had plundered the hearts of his young patriarchs. A moral famine, a moral decay in their hearts that didn't begin with just the slavery or the selling of slavery to, of Joseph. This moral famine, this moral decay that had taken over these patriarchs, these 11 sons of Jacob, didn't begin with the selling of Joseph. No, lest we forget, two of them committed genocide in Shechem slaughtered every male in the city. Reuben had intercourse with his stepmom to spite his father. Judah abandoned his twice-widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar. 
And then to top it all off, out of bitter jealousy, these brothers fake Joseph's death and sell him into slavery. These are scoundrels. If Fox News or CNN were to provide a headline concerning the egregious action of these brothers, you know what they would call them? Monsters. Animals. And yet, signs of godly sorrow begin to surface. In truth, they say, we are guilty concerning our brother. We listened as he begged for his life and we did not relent. We have sinned and we deserve what is coming our way. We are guilty and there is no excuse for what we have done. And it's in this moment when we start to see godly sorrow, godly guilt begin to surface in the heart of these brothers. It's in this moment, beloved, we learn a wholly unique and sometimes uncomfortable truth concerning the heart of our Lord. And that is this. He not only offers grace and restitution for the oppressed, but he also offers the grace of repentance to the oppressors. Calvin, in his commentary, writes this. So there is no doubt that God, in order to lead the sons of Jacob to repentance, impelled them. That's why I'm using this quote. That's what it feels like when God's guilt gets you. You're impelled. in order to lead the sons of Jacob to repentance, impelled them by both the secret instinct of his spirit and by outward chastisement to become conscious of the sin that had been concealed for too long. Calvin is saying, and I agree, God is doing this. Make no mistake about it. God is leading these people, these men, these monsters into repentance. He is not only pursuing vindication for Joseph, but repentance for his brothers. This is outrageous. And so the question is, as I have sat with this and am sitting with it afresh, how does this sit with you this morning? As the headlines of breaking news after breaking news after breaking news. Maybe you this morning or listening online, 
Maybe you have been impelled by guilt over sin that you are sure is out of the bounds of God's grace. You are sure in this moment as you hear my voice that you have transgressed the bounds of God's grace. And you're convinced that God won't grant you repentance. This text disagrees with you. The Bible disagrees with you. The sons were guilty of genocide, fratricide, the attempted murder of their own brother, and unspeakable injustice. And yet we see clearly here in the text God is pursuing them with forgiveness in his eyes. God does not call them monsters. He does not call them animals. In just a few chapters, he is about to call them forgiven. And I am the lucky one this morning to tell you that that could be your name too. Forgiven. Is there guilt? Yes. Is there consequences? Yes. Is the pain of shame there and unrelenting at times? Yes, but that is not the end of the story for one who has been forgiven by God. This is the hope of the Bible. This is why we gather. This is why we take the body and the blood of Christ every week. This is why we sing songs of forgiveness. This is it. This is the core of what we believe. That God saves sinners. And he loves to do it. He doesn't reluctantly save sinners. He doesn't hold his nose and pursue our lives. He comes all the way in. There's nothing like it. I'm not sure I'm going to get beyond this. The brothers had no idea that Joseph could understand them. They're confessing their guilt. In truth, we're guilty of this. Reuben says, we've sinned. I told you not to sin against God. They have no idea that Joseph understands their language. Joseph, for the first time, heard them confess to murder. He heard for the first time remorse for what they had done. He heard for the first time his oldest brother, Reuben, was not for the plan. Oh, thank God one of them was not for this. He heard all of it, and the lump in his throat now is replaced by the first signs of compassion in his heart. He's overcome with emotion, and it says in verse 24, he turns away and what? Weeps.
Is there still a long way to go before he can fully forgive his brothers? Yes. Is everything fine and good? No. But this was the first and biggest step toward his own healing and ultimately reconciliation with his family, which is coming. So, interrogation and testing is followed by signs of godly sorrow. Our final scene this morning in the text rather comes as the brothers are heading home with a new sense that God has awakened their conscience. They have a new sense that God is after them. And real quick, before we keep reading, have you ever felt that? Oh, that is drop-dead scary. When you actually come to the realization that you've got God's attention. And so this final scene is called Godly Fear. On the way home, they discover that the money they used to purchase food had been replenished. We have all of this food, and one of them opens up their money sack and goes, oh no, somebody has replenished the money that we use to purchase the food. And when this realization comes, we get insights into their perspective, don't we? In the past, you know it. You can just predict in the past what they would have done with that. Woohoo! <laughs> we beat the system, right? We got food and we have our money and we only had to sacrifice one brother. In the past, you would have seen them as sort of celebrating this. But that's not what they have. It's not the perspective they have now. Now, godly fear has replaced self-preservation. This is good. When this happens in your heart and mind, when godly fear begins to overcome self-preservation, that is a good sign of maturity. One of the brothers opened the sack and noticed the money. Listen to his response in verse 28. He said to his brothers, um, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, and here's the insight into their hearts. What is this that God has done to us? One commentator is quick to note, this is the first time these brothers have ever mentioned God in this entire narrative. This is the first time that God moves into their worldview. What is this that God has done to us? Again, godly fear was beginning. It's not the end. This is just the dawning of repentance. Godly fear was beginning to overcome their desire for self-preservation. As another author writes, this is so important. Fear is one thing. There is a kind of general fear, 
That's not what we're talking about. Godly fear is different. Fear is one thing, but godly fear comes from sensing that a holy God is the hand behind the circumstances of your life to bring you to where you ought to be. That's godly fear. It's a sobering moment. God is orchestrating these things. And the brothers are now convinced, at least in seed form, in infant form, that God was behind these circumstances, that God was pursuing justice for Joseph. But little did they know that God was not only pursuing justice and vindication for Joseph, but God was pursuing the grace of repentance for them. Well, finally, they get home. I'm not going to read the text. They get home. Their father, Jacob, is terrified by the news. He feels he's lost another son. Simeon now is in captivity in Egypt. Oh, great, another one. And so he is not in the least ready to let Benjamin go with this whole rescue plan. But something had already changed in the hearts of the brothers. You'll notice at the end of the story, Reuben is ready to sacrifice his two sons to go rescue Simeon. That's not like Reuben. In a moment, he's ready to go sacrifice two of his own sons to rescue one of Jacob's. We'll notice later that Judah is willing to risk his own life for reconciliation. Something is changing in the hearts of these oppressors. God is at work in them and it's in motion and nothing's going to stop it. I said earlier as we close that this text teaches us a wholly unique and sometimes uncomfortable truth about the character of God. And that is that he not only offers grace and restitution for the oppressed, but he also offers the grace of repentance to the oppressors. And it's uncomfortable. But the reality is, Joseph is more like his brothers than unlike them. When we get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart, Joseph is more like his brothers than unlike them. I'm not saying that the scale of Joseph's disobedience was the same as his brother's. But like his brothers, Joseph was born as an enemy of God and in need of divine rescue. The Bible does reveal stories of God's people that are more faithful and less faithful. Joseph is clearly a story of someone who is more faithful. And we praise God for this story. But listen, the Bible does not provide a worldview. Please listen. Where there are good guys and bad guys. Where God protects the good guys and punishes the bad guys. 
That is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is more outrageous than that. It's more scandalous than that. The Bible tells the story of this one good God who pursues a terribly lost and fallen world of which we are all a part of. A world where every human being on the planet is infused with sin and destined to eternal ruin. And the Bible reports the story of this one good God who sends his only begotten son, Jesus Christ the righteous, surprisingly a descendant of Adam, truly God and truly man. This one good God sends his one good son to live, to die, and to rise for an undeserving people. This is why we've said from the beginning of this service that God and his grace is often referred to as scandalous. That God would offer repentance to Joseph's brothers is outrageous. That God would offer repentance to us is outrageous. Romans 5, as we close, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the godly, for the good, for the ones that wear white, for the upright, for the morally perfect, sinfully impenitent, No, for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So two famines in the land. The second one more severe than the first. The second one, we don't have money. We don't have the cost of redemption. We cannot ransom our souls or the souls of another man. We come, like God says in Isaiah 55, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, no moral currency, Come, buy and eat. Come out of the famine. Come feast yourself on good food. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do not waste your life for that which does not satisfy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, address now, I pray, the moral famine among those who hear the story of Genesis 42. I am particularly thinking of those that believe they are beyond redemption. Those that would place themselves in the category of Joseph's brothers, guilty of high treason, unforgivable sin, those that right now perhaps are sitting in a jail cell wondering how this could all have happened so quickly. 
when all earthly dignity has been stripped, would you impel them with godly guilt? Lead them to godly sorrow where they might repent and find times of refreshing to be called forgiven. This is outrageous. And this is the nature of you, our King. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.